good morning. I apologize that we can't be here in person with you all this week, but we decided we'd do the next best thing, a video recording of the sermon, and uh, we are with you in spirit even as the service is going on. What do you think of when you ponder the word humility? Do you think of someone who's a doormat, who lets people walk all over them, uh, unprotested? Or do you think of someone who's always maybe self-deprecating or someone who can't look anyone in the eye? You see, humility and its complementary virtue, love, are key elements in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And without them, delighting in Christ and in his work in the world is impossible. You see, it's important to understand what true humility is and what it isn't, some of those things we mentioned earlier, and how unity in the body of Christ is accomplished through a humble and loving heart. We'll be looking at these very things this week in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. Now, so far, we've seen the key idea of the book. If I am delighting in Christ, I will delight in the people and the mission of God. Last week, we saw how God desires us to abound in our love for one another and not be distracted from his mission by envious and divisive motives from ourselves or even from other people. Rather, our motto, as the Apostle Paul's was, ought to be, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It ought to be all about Christ, knowing him and making him known. We are to remember where our true citizenship, our true identity is. It's in heaven because we are the children of God, heirs of the kingdom of Christ. So this week, we'll begin in chapter 2 and open in a word of prayer here and join with me in prayer, even though this is not necessarily a live video. Father, we come to you today in prayer God, asking that you would reveal us your truth in your word, that we would see Christ in his glory, that it would change our hearts, that, that we would see the cross and glory in it and find our, our mission, God, in, in yours to, to further the gospel in the lives of our fellow believers and in the world. So I pray that you would bless your word, give us open hearts to hear what you would have us to hear and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we saw how Paul begins with a series of commands after giving his own example of how he views the difficulties and the, and the suffering that he goes through. It was a series of prescriptions, if you will, a, a series of commands for the Philippians to fulfill. And many of us have gone to doctors or different physicians, and they've given us prescriptions. And what those are really are different orders for take certain medicine at certain times in order to cure a certain problem, or at least to take care of it. And for Paul, he gives his own prescriptions, if you will, commands and, and uh, exhortations of how to live and think that he knows will help the Philippians in the struggle that they have with unity and, and suffering. The first of these we saw in chapter 1, verse 27. If you're using the Pew Bible, that was page 980. Well, the first one was to live as worthy citizens of God's, God's kingdom, to place their identity in their, their citizenship, which is in heaven, and to live accordingly. 
And the second major prescription command of Paul here begins in chapter 2. He says that we must be of the same mind. So read with me here, in chap- beginning in chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, in chapter 2 here, Paul begins his exhortations with a series of if statements, if you will. Now, these statements are meant to tenderly woo the Philippians back to the life of unity in Christ. It's with the same spirit that he gives, that he has in chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Now, these statements are intended to drive us back to what is ours through our union with Christ. They're not uh, statements of Paul wondering if these things are true, since he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ or all of these things, they're more carrying the weight of sins, that Paul is confident of these things, but just as if you're a parent to a child and you say, now, if you're my son, then you should act accordingly. Well, you're not doubting your child's sonship, but you're encouraging him with the fact that that is true, and if it is true, then he should walk accordingly. So Paul encourages them with the fact and reminds them that of what they've been given in Christ. He says to them that they have received love from Christ. They've received encouragement in Him through their union with Him. Comfort from His love. They've together as a body of believers participated in the same Spirit that's been given to all of them. And they have affection and sympathy within the body of Christ. So if all those things are true, which they are, Paul tells them to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is repetition of really the same idea that he's getting at. And this is for emphasis, trying to to drill into them what they need to be doing, what they need to be about. These phrases, he's pleading with them to be united in their goals, their outlooks on life, their purposes, and united in their affections. What they, what they think and, and, and desire, they are to live and think as one for the, bot, for the name of Christ. Paul here encourages them with repeatedly, especially of this think on the same things, to be of the same mind. That's to have the same attitude, the same, uh, the same goals, to, to not be distracted by things that would seek to divide them. Consider this from what A.W. Tozier says in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, or, yes, pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other. The pianos are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to, one, to another standard to which each 
one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You see, what he's saying there is that unity and this idea of being of the same mind is impossible apart from everyone looking to Christ and having his mindset. If, if we're just to try to be uh, united just through looking to each other and to try to, to think uh, the way each other, th- the other people think in our church, and, and we're not all of us focused on Christ, then our unity will be impossible. It will be a false unity, temporary, fake. You see, unity is different than uniformity. Uniformity is external compliance, but unity can only be produced from the heart, a heart that has the desires and affections of Christ. See, to not have this unified, Christ-centered focus is to be full of selfish ambition and conceit. False and unjustified pride, that's what conceit means here in what Paul says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You see, when we have this conceit, this unjustified, false pride and boasting, we're actually thinking of our own desires and selfish goals as them being supreme, and everyone else must bow to them in our minds. We think that. But Paul is telling us we are to humbly consider the needs of others as being more significant than our own needs. You see, this is not an asceticism where we just don't at all think about our own needs, but it's a humility that seeks to bless and serve others over ourselves. That, a mindset that looks out for the good of others, even if it costs us what we think would be good for ourselves. You see, Rick Warren has an interesting quote here. He says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. See, when we have this humble mindset, we're not going to be caught up in, in just constantly thinking about what we need, what, what we need to have to obtain in order for us to have a more satisfied life. But we're thinking that because I am full in Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, how can I bless others? You see, sometimes, in fact, all the time, humility is not really is, is not thinking more of ourselves than we ought to think. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. It's thinking appropriately about ourselves, humbly, in light of our own sinfulness, but we're not discouraged by that because we have Christ's righteousness applied to us. So how is this mindset of humbly serving others possible? It's because when we are content in Christ, seeking to know Him, we no longer grasp and claw after the things we need to feel satisfied. All we have and all we need is Christ. You see, Paul here now, in verse 5 of the book of chapter 2, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another way to translate that is this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. See, now he switches to an example that we must look to Christ if we are to have and attain this mindset of unity and and going after the same goals and affections as a body. See, this 
series of verses from verses 6 to 11 was originally a church hymn. This hymn is profoundly theological. Paul views the problems of the Philippians, and therefore our own problems today, as not, or excuse me, as having theological answers to the problems. They were not understanding in a way that affects their heart right theology. Because if they were understanding proper theology, what God says about himself and ourselves and about Christ, then it would change the way they live. So he introduces them to a rich theology of Christ because he knows that when we behold God's glory in the face of Christ, we are changed. So, let's look at these verses. Speaking of Christ in verse 6, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, this hymn is meant to point us to the one who humbled himself beyond imagination for sinners, the one who perfectly looked not on his own interests, but on the interests of others. This hymn dives into the great truths about Christ's humility and his subsequent exaltation at the right hand of the Father. You see, this phrase here at verse 6, who, although he was in the form of God, it can be difficult to understand. What does that mean? Well, theologian Robert J. Leitner says of this word form here that it stresses the inner essence or reality of that which, which it is associated you see, hence, Jesus is truly divine. He is in the form of God. He is truly God. All that could be said of God the Father in his glory and majesty is, could be said of Christ. Hence, he is the true Son of God. Colossians 1 says of Christ that he is the image of the invisible God, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Christ was one with the Father from all etern eternity, equal in glory and majesty. All of the Old Testament descriptions of God's glory were equally applicable to the glory of the Son of God. You see, the angels called out to him as we see in Isaiah chapter 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one whose presence came to Mount Sinai, as we read in Exodus chapter 20, with thick, <clears throat> excuse me, dark clouds with thunder and lightning. And he came in fire with smoke wrapping the whole mountain and causing it to shake violently. 
And this was his glory, the glory that he possessed with the Father from all eternity past. But even though he was this glorious, eternally begotten Son of God, he did not consider such a position to be exploited or used for his own personal advantage. That's what it means when verse 6, when he said, he did not count it, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be exploited for his own benefit. But rather, from the foundation of the world, the Son covenanted together with the Father to be the Lamb who would be slain for your sins and my sins. You see, it says in verse 7, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Though Christ had all the praises of all of heaven's angels, of the cherubim, of the seraphim, glorifying Him day and night, He did not consider all those things as something that was too much to be laid aside, to be set aside, to be emptied of. Why? Because He considered the things of us, His, his obedience to the, to the plan of salvation that had been settled, He considered that more important. So we read that He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. <clears throat> now it's important that we understand that He did not cease to be the divine Son of God for even a moment in His incarnation. You see, He laid aside the glory, privileges, and honor that were rightfully his, which he possessed in heaven. Now, this emptying took place not by removing attributes of his deity, but rather by adding a human nature. It was a subtraction by addition, if you will. You see, this, the King James renders this uh, phrase, he emptied himself very well, honestly. It's, he's, it, it renders it, he made himself of no reputation, You see, D.A. Carson notes that it could be said that Christ made himself literally a nobody for us. He took the form of a servant. He truly came as one who did not seek to be served by men, but to serve them. You see, by adding a human nature, coming as a servant... He veiled the glory that he had possessed with the Father from eternity past. He chose to set it aside and to come for us. You see, the Son of God, think of this. The Son of God, co-equal with the Father from all eternity, full of glory and majesty, incomprehensible to our finite minds, became an embryo in the womb of a virgin for us in obedience to his Father. He lived the first 30 years of his life as an unrecognized craftsman. And even in his ministry, he was scorned and rejected. He shared in the afflictions and the pains of living in a fallen world, though he himself was without sin. His whole earthly life was characterized by being a servant, In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of God, who had every right 
to be served, to be worshipped, to, to have others just day and night worship Him. He came unannounced in a town that no one had room for Him in. But rather than having all the glory that He deserved, He chose to be the one who served others. He humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant. And Christ demonstrated this. In John 13, we read how He, in the upper room, washed the disciples' dirty, manure, soiled feet from the roads and, 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 and filthy pathways that they had been traveling. <clears throat> this was a job of a lowly servant. Yet Christ laid aside His garments even there, honestly picturing His emptying of Himself. And He came and washed the disciples' feet to give us an example of what love truly is. You see, Christ, when he came, and it says in verse 8, and being found in human form after his coming, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, not only did Christ humble himself by merely <clears throat> excuse me, taking on a human nature to his divine, but his obedience and love went even so far as to submit to the worst kind of death imaginable, the death of a cross. The glorious Son of God allowed himself to bear the most humiliating, painful death yet devised by man. He hung naked on a tree being mocked and scorned by onlookers rebellious, sinful people, as every inch of his body was ravaged by intolerable pain. But worst of all, on that tree, he took the curse of sin that rested on you and me. These are things that he did not deserve. He did not deserve to, to serve others. He, he was worthy of so much more than that. Yet he comes and submits even to the point of a death on a cross, on a tree that symbolized his being cursed for you and for me. You see, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake, the Father, he made him to be sin, Christ, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the love of Christ demonstrated in his humiliation for us, it, dis it disarms our pride and our selfishness. We see that if Christ, the one to whom the highest glory was due, humbled himself beyond imagination for our sake, how can we, who do not deserve glory, but rather judgment for our sinfulness, how can we not? self-sacrificially love and serve others as well, considering the things of ourselves as less important than the interests of others. It's only reasonable. Paul is, is taking this example from greater to lesser. Christ, if he's so great as to do this, how much we who are lesser, how much more should we do the same? 
You see, the picture painted in this song, this hymn to Christ, is one of continual descent to the lowest forms of humility, even the worst conceivable death, the death on a cross. Yet, in verse 9, a dramatic shift takes place. This shift is that out of the descent, a dramatic ascent takes place. In verses 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, because of Christ's humble obedience, God the Father has super exalted him. That's literally what the phrase means. <clears throat> this is a reference to the resurrection. From the cold, dark tomb, Christ has been lifted up to claim the glorious name that is higher than any other name, the name of Lord. You see, these verses allude back to Isaiah 45, actually, where Yahweh himself declares, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Hence, we see in Philippians 2 that Jesus is Yahweh who spoke these words long ago. And the word for Lord here is kurios. It was used in place of the name Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that many of the people in this day would have used. Hence, by confessing that Jesus is Lord, everything in all creation will confess that Jesus literally is Yahweh, the one true God of the Old Testament, God a very God, the supreme Lord of all the universe. This is not a new name to him that has been granted to him after the resurrection. Rather, he has been specially exalted so that all will see and his great glory because of what he has done and confess and praise and laud him as worthy. All of this is to the glory of God the Father. On the last day, everyone will see the resplendent glory of the one who gave himself up, the lamb who was slain, who is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And all will give to him the glory and honor he is due as Yahweh, the one true God. See, what does this amazing love and selflessness of Christ teach about us how we are to live? Well, what are the areas of our hearts that we bow down to at the altar of self-interest and pride? Is your idolatry wreaking havoc among the church body, among your, uh, your family members, your, in your marriage, your friendships, your work? Maybe, maybe it's, it's, you have problems with how you think church ought to be doing certain things, and you disagree with decisions. Or, and, and instead of taking those in a, in a Christ-like manner, and you begin to create division. You begin to gossip. You begin to murmur. 
Or maybe you think your spouse should be doing more for you and you're constantly thinking about uh, what they should be doing for you rather than what you can be doing to minister to them. Husbands, maybe after a long day of work, the house isn't as clean as you'd like, or maybe it's not as peaceful, maybe the kids are going crazy. And you begin to focus on that rather than how you can help your wife. Or wives, maybe your husband is not the spiritual leader he should be, but instead of faithfully loving him and praying for him, do you become bitter against him? Or maybe in the church you think, I, I can't take that lowly service job for the church. I mean, isn't that beneath me? No one's going to really recognize that. I mean, it's not going to be worth my time. Or maybe you think, I, I can't financially give to God's work the church. I mean, I, I need every penny I can get. I have to look out for myself. How can I give to God if, if he, I mean, he, after all, he isn't blessing me as much as I think he should. It's completely the wrong attitude. These, we could go on and on with examples that, uh, of selfishness that keeps us from humbling ourselves in our own minds and serving. Paul, after this glorious hymn of the glory of Christ, moves on in verse 12 to, to give exhortation in light of these truths. You see, if we have such a great Savior who has been exalted over every authority because of his humility and his sacrifice, we are to reverentially work out the implications of our salvation that he worked to provide for us. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, this idea of fear and trembling that we're supposed to have here, that how we're supposed to work out our salvation, not work for, but a salvation that we already have, we are to work out its implications. And we're to do that with fear and trembling. What does that mean? See, this is a deep, a spirit of deep awe and reverence that comes by realizing the great price of our salvation and who it is that accomplished this great deliverance. Who we just looked at in verses 6 through 11, the glorious Son of God who humbled himself and is now super exalted and every tongue will swear allegiance to him, including ourselves. You see, but in verse 13 it says, Do this because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This great responsibility of, of outworking the salvation is not meant to crush us. It's not supposed to crush us because God is the one who works in us both the desire and the effort to effectually accomplish his will. Some of us may need to take these verses here and focus on the fear and trembling aspect. We, we don't have a, a spirit of reverence about the salvation that's been given to us. Maybe we view salvation as, you know, kind of a, a ticket out of hell, and we're thinking, well, maybe one day I'll really start, you know, living for the Lord. I kind of plan to do that. But now, I mean, I, there's a lot better things, isn't there? 
Or maybe some of us are depending too much on ourselves to bring about the good desires and the ability to to do God's will. We think we have to produce these things in us, that we've got to be strong in this walk with God, but we need to realize that we depend on Him, both for the desires to do what is right and to be able to do those things. You see, Paul gives them some instructions on how to work out this salvation. In verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul tells them in verse 14 not to grumble or argue with one another. This is their key problem. And the words here allude to literally the children of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness against their leaders, but ultimately against God. Rather than have their lives being characterized by this grumbling and bickering amongst each other because of differences, he wants them to be pure and undefiled so that the world may recognize them as the children of God who are holding out, holding forth steadfastly the word of life, the gospel, for an unbelieving and crooked generation to see. They're to stop being distracted by their grumbling and arguing and to start rejoicing in the furtherance of God's saving purposes in the world and even with the apostle himself. It's so easy for us to grumble, to be discontent, and to argue with others who disagree with us rather than in humility strive together for the gospel. So where are we grumbling against God ultimately and then fighting with others? Maybe church leadership made a decision you didn't like, so you gossip, grumble, inappropriately argue with others. Maybe someone said or did something that offended you. But instead of going directly to that person, you begin to gossip about it with others and say, do you know what they did to me? I mean, how, how could they do that? When we are, no, listen to this, when we are selfish and prideful, we very easily see the faults of others rather than our own faults. And we become bitter against those people and grumbling and divisions result. But if we have a a mindset that appropriately thinks about ourselves as we really ought to, we're going to give grace to each other because we know the grace has been given to us. Maybe uh, grumbling and complaining and fighting takes place because God doesn't seem to be giving us the things that we think we need. So we become discontent with God, and then that results in becoming angry with others, short with others, thinking that they're always falling short. Or maybe you're on a church committee or a board at work, and your ideas aren't being taken. So you become angry, and you start grumbling, rather than being respectful to those above you. The examples, again, could go on and on. So think and allow the Holy Spirit to illumine in your own heart, God, where are the areas that I am discontent, that I grumble, that I complain, that I bicker, have this tendency to fight with others? 
Paul doesn't leave these commands without flesh and bone examples, if you will. In verses 19 to 30, he gives the Philippians some real down-to-earth, relatable examples of what it is to be concerned not with self, but with Christ and his cause. First, he, he tells of Timothy. Read with me in verse 19. <clears throat> he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. You see, this first example of Timothy, the key thought here, that Paul really wants to get into their heads, it says in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Rather than being selfishly concerned about himself, he is genuinely concerned for the well-being of others. Their spiritual and physical prospering in Christ. For Paul says everyone else seeks their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, caring for others is not, ultimately, yes, we do love them, but ultimately, we, we love them because Christ has loved them. Because we're interested in the purposes and the, the, the interests of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it here. So therefore, we choose to love others. We choose to be concerned for their welfare. The next example here is Epaphroditus. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men." For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see, Epaphroditus, Paul calls him a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, one who shared with him in fighting for the purposes of Christ. Here was a man, one of the Philippians themselves, from their church body, who was so passionate about God's work and God's people that he almost lost his life in God's service. Even when he was so ill, near to almost dying, his concern was still not on himself, but was still on the well-beings of the Philippians because he was like, man, they know that I'm sick and they're probably worried about me and, and how is this affecting them? That's a person who has the interests of Christ, who loves others and wants to further God's work in their lives. You see, in verse 29, Paul says to honor such men. He, they are to look to these men as models of, of concern over what really matters and for selfless work in God's service. Today, we are to look 
to those in our midst who do not have personal agendas, a grumbling spirit, a divisive heart, but rather those who seek to selflessly further God's work in the hearts and lives of God's people in and around the world. So I ask us as we finish this sermon, what is our heart attitude today? Are we full of selfish agendas, pride, grumbling, discontentment? Or are we standing firm in the gospel with one love, with one heart, and one mind that is set on knowing Christ and making him known in the world? Remember, if I am delighting in Christ, I will delight in the people and the mission of God. See, Christ has shown us what true self-sacrificial love really is. He had all the rights to all the glories, privileges, and honors that heaven offered. Yet he left it all, humbled himself to take on a human, human nature and become a servant, a bond slave, literally someone who was a slave. His love and obedience to the Father allowed him to suffer the most horrible death, the death of a cross, for you and for me. Now he is the exalted Lord to whom every knee will bow and to whom every tongue will make confession. He is the Lord of his church as well. And as our Lord, he is calling us to live lives of unity and purpose for the sake of Christ and the gospel because we have been so greatly loved and forgiven and blessed and filled with everything our hearts could desire in him. Let's close in prayer. Pray with me. Father, we do confess our, our selfishness, our, our pride, the fact that we consider ourselves above the lowly services that sometimes we have to do in your work. We don't love others the way we should. We don't care for them. We don't seek their interest. We don't seek to love them to Christ. So Father, we beg that you would give us a greater vision, a greater view of Christ in his glory that we would be so enraptured by who he is, what he has done for us, that we recognize our humble state and we see that we have everything we need in you so we don't have to claw and grasp selfishly at what we think we need, but we can freely empty ourselves for others' good because we know, God, that you are our joy, you are our delight. And to serve you is our greatest privilege. So, Father, we pray that that would be our hearts. We pray that that would be the heart of Covington Baptist Church and of your church around the world. And we ask this with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.